Hello, and welcome back to this Audible Mums group. My name's Ali Barnes, and today I wanted to understand what it looks like for parents of babies who start their life in NICU, Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, and how we can better support them and their families during this time. Maybe this is a part of your journey, or you know someone who's about to spend some time in NICU. I hope this conversation is helpful. I found it incredibly insightful hearing from a wonderful and strong mum, Nikki Hay, about her time in NICU. So my name is Nikki Hay. I'm 32 years old and I'm married. I've been married for six years. I have a four-year-old daughter called Paloma and a 10-month-old called Sophia. And we are currently in um, isolation. We're watching a lot of TV, although that's no different to my normal parenting style. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the episode is called Niku. So it's not spoiling yep. the story to say that your second daughter, Soph, um, spent okay. time in Niku. <laughs> In an earlier episode on the pod, you shared about your miscarriage experiences, seven of them. Now, Mm -hmm. most people get to the 12-week scan and they get a huge surge of relief knowing, you know, they're out of that high-risk period. But you described the 12-week scan with Soph as one of the worst days of your life. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. Well, it's interesting because with Paloma, we were with this real old school dude who's super nice, but he definitely like gets on better with the dads, you know, so like I'd be in there nervous and sweating and asking questions. He's like, we'll come to that. And then Mike would ask a question and be like, great question, Mike. Um, let's go with that. And like, hang on a second. Hang on. So with him, he's, he'd been very much in charge. So when it came to the 12 week scan, he said, we can do the neutral translucency scan, but unless there's a reason that you would terminate this pregnancy, I do not recommend it. And I said, and why is that? And he said, because you may see something that worries you um, and there's nothing that can prepare you no matter what you find out. So if you found out you were having a child with Turner syndrome, Down syndrome, um, Fatal syndrome, any of these syndromes that will show up in the neutral translucency scan, there is nothing that you can do between 12 weeks and birth that will actually prepare you for it. You just have to live it. So I was like, that's great advice. I'll take that on board. Yeah, no drama. So we did the 12-week scan, but he didn't talk about it with us. It was just a normal scan. Here's the heartbeat. You know, here's the kicking legs. So with Soph, we'd actually been going through the EPAS, which is the Early Pregnancy Assessment Service at Randwick Hospital. Why so, did you decide to go through that? Because we'd been um, having so many miscarriages. They take you on board and say, we'll walk through this with you. So they have to do the 12-week scan when you go through the EPAS. It's a public system. Um, it's not a private obstetrician. You're required to do it. So they sent us out to go get that done. I had Paloma with me in the car. It was a pouring rain day. When we got there, the, the sonographer said to me, just so you know, we don't normally allow kids in here. So if you can't keep her still, she'll have to sit outside. I want to be like, oh, yeah, cool. I'll just ask Paloma, my three-year-old, babe, can you sit outside? Because, like, you're being really annoying and just sit out there by yourself and just do some colouring. So during the scan, everything looks fine. But I had Googled neutral translucency scan beforehand because I hadn't had one and kind of just wanted to know what it was about. And I realised that the biggest part of it was this this neutral fold at the back of the baby's head. And if it's thick, it's not a good sign. So as I was watching her measure it, I could see it was thick. But I was just hoping that she'd say, this is fine, but she never did. We got to the end of the scan and I was waiting to meet with a obstetrician. And she said, we don't have an obstetrician here to talk to you. We're going to send you back to Rabbit Hospital to meet with the other person there. At that point, you're like, oh, no, like, this isn't great. Um, So, yes, I went home. I told my mum. Mum came over and got Paloma, and then I had to wait, and then I went over and met with a lovely woman called Lynn, and she said, this is what it looks like. And then she ran through all of the things that it could be. 
And what were those things that you were potentially up yeah. for? Basically, it's like fluid. And the fluid could mean that your baby has Down syndrome. It could mean that your baby has Turner syndrome. It could be Patel syndrome or Edward syndrome, or it could be a cardiac issue. So in the time, she was explaining to me what all those things are. So Down syndrome is obviously very common. People know what Down syndrome is. The other mark of a Down syndrome is often not having a nasal bone because kids who are born with Down syndrome don't have that. She said we can see a very clear nasal bone, so we don't think it's that. Edward syndrome is trisonomy 18, and it's they call it, a lot of the time they say this is a syndrome that's not compatible with life. So the parents who've got kids who've got that, they fight so hard for their kids because they're like, look at my kid, they're alive, they are compatible with life. And mm-hmm. um, then there's Patel syndrome, which very few kids actually um, get term or are born or are born alive or live very long. And then there's cardiac issues. So it could be really anything. And I remember at the time when she was explaining this to me, Mike wasn't with me. I asked her if I could record our sessions. So I could, you know, show him. She said, no, they don't do that there. She said, what we recommend is you do an amniocentesis. I said no to that because amniocentesis can cause miscarriage. And we just had, you know, five in a row. Sure. And she said, the other thing we can do then is the NIPT test or the harmony test, where we'll take your blood and we'll find out if there's any um, toxic infections. And that could be another reason it would be happening, a smaller reason. And we'll also get back the it's basically a yes or a no sort of thing about does the baby have these syndromes and again nothing's certain so they'll do the test and hope that you know they get the answers nothing's certain so then that was it we did the test and I'd go home and I remember going home my sister-in-law had come over which was so good of her she was helping with Paloma and I just lay on the floor and my mum and my sister-in-law got out the big book of names and they said okay let's think of names for this baby and they were just like you know this is the baby it's your baby still let's let's push on was that a helpful uh, yeah, it was helpful, but I was miserable. I was just like, I remember praying as well, specifically, please God, we've had so many miscarriages. Only let this pregnancy continue if it's going to be a healthy baby. And here we were at this point where they were basically saying, this baby's not healthy. And the one thing they'd said to us too is that, look, you may get to a 16-week scan and there'll be no fluid and all of these things will come back negative and it won't be an issue. And, you know, we'll just move on past it. But to get to 16 weeks, we had to have... Um, Christmas we were going away for Christmas we wouldn't have you know that everything was shut down we wouldn't find out until after Christmas and I knew it just felt like it was you know miles and miles away so at the time I was just like oh you know this is terrible yeah so you had to wait four weeks for the results were you telling people around you were you asking them to pray what what did those four um, weeks that look day, like I had a very close friend called Sam Chapman who's gone to heaven recently and he has like prayed alongside us in our pregnancies both times and I remember just messaging him and saying I can't believe this is happening and I explained the whole thing to him of all the possibilities it could be and I remember him just saying like you know one step at a time and all you can do is wait and it was just so encouraging because I was like it's true you know like all I wanted to do is wallow and I just I did really need someone to say to me like you don't know yet don't go there don't don't go there until you know and I I have the tendency to be a little bit manic with um with google um, and I just tried to not do that. It was very hard to not, you know, scroll through Instagram tags and look on Google. But it was helpful just to have one person say to me, like, just don't go there. And obviously my mum and sister-in-law were super helpful too. But sometimes you just need someone outside of your family <laughs> to be, you know, the person who actually can rationalise with you a bit better. Yeah. So, yeah, it was hard. So what was the diagnosis? So we went to the 16-week scan and Mike came with me, which was great. Um, and they were, you know, doing the scan and she was like wiggling. And by that time we knew she was a girl. Because, sorry, let me just backtrack here a little bit. Uh, a couple of weeks later, they call us and said, look, 99% sure 
it's not Down syndrome, Patel's or Edwards. It still could be, but 99% sure it's not. And that felt like a victory because obviously like whatever your baby has, you love that baby. And I'm not, not to say that you, you know, wish against having a baby with any kind of disability, but obviously every parent is frightened of that and anxious of what those possibilities are. No, of course. I mean, you want the best, you want an easy life for your baby and, and those things are certainly yeah. challenges. Absolutely. And for the parents who've had babies born with those disabilities, obviously they see the joys and the you know miracle and the happiness that they have with their kid. Until you know those things, fear is basically what you've got. So they told us it wasn't that. They told us that she didn't have any toxic infections, so it wasn't that. Um, but at that time, they also told us she was a girl. So that was really exciting. So I found out in Target that day. I pretty sure I bought something pink in Target, you know, just as like a treat for myself. So then we knew she was a girl. So then, it, you know, we had to wait to get till 16 weeks to do the next scan, which was the heart scan. So at 12 weeks, her heart was too small to look at. We had to wait till 16 weeks. We did that scan. We went into Lynn's office again, you know, going being called into the office. It's like oh, the principal's office. It's never good. Mm. Um, and they said to us, she has tetralogy of fallow. Um, now, Lynn, who's wonderful, is not a cardiologist. So she was not actually allowed to diagnose that. But she said it's very clear. We can see it. You know, I would be shocked if it wasn't this. She showed us the four chambers, how things were not going right. This is what the baby's got. So tetralogy of fallow. I went home and Googled it. It was a hard pill to swallow. So what does it mean in practical terms? What was Soph going to struggle with? So Sophia basically has got a hole in her heart. Um, there's a gap in the wall in the chambers of her heart, so the blood mixes. And then we came to find out later she also has something called pulmonary atresia, which is where the pulmonary artery is so small or completely closed that doesn't let the lungs don't work. So there's no blood flow to the lungs and her lungs don't work. So she would not be able to breathe on her own. Yeah, basically. And how did you feel learning all that, Googling all that? Yeah, I think at the time I um, kept thinking that maybe something would happen where it wouldn't be that, like maybe there would be some kind of misunderstanding or maybe there would be some kind of um, generous miracle <laughs> where it wouldn't be that. And when we went to a heart scan, detailed heart scan, I was lying there, I couldn't see the screen, Mike was there, neither of us knew what we were looking at or what we were looking for. He was completely silent for the hour that it went on for. And he said, yes, it's to trail fellow. And I found something else. I was just like, what? Like, really? It's not totally fine after all. And it's actually worse than we originally thought. That was pretty hard. And um, even still then, they can't give you any guarantees or information. It's just literally one scan at a time. So they couldn't tell us when she'd have a first operation. They couldn't tell us if she'd be able to breathe when she was born. They couldn't be able to tell us anything except that. We would not be able to have her at random as planned, that we would be having her at Westmead because that's where the cardiac surgeons were. So it was every single time it was a lot of information. And how are you relating to God during this time? Um, yeah, fine. I read my Bible every day and I have a prayer calendar. At that time I was using a prayer calendar to pray every day. So I was very like dedicated in ticking that off. I have to tick this off to keep my routine of speaking with God. And I don't want to stop speaking to God because then our relationship starts to drift. And my brother had always said to me, um, you know, even if you don't want to read your Bible, you read it anyway because you'll always hear something that's worth hearing. So I was doing that, reading my Bible and praying. I found that in some ways I was kind of disconnected from the whole thing. It was almost like it wasn't happening to me. And I think, again, still you kind of keep thinking maybe it won't happen, maybe it won't be this. So my relationship with God didn't take any hits during this time. How was the rest of your pregnancy? Um, it was good. I, I really enjoyed being pregnant the first time with Paloma. I could have been pregnant forever. In fact, I remember right before she was meant to be born, I was like, I'm going to have another month of this, like going to the beach and not working. It was 
great. Like Mike would come home from like a long day of laboring and I'd be like on the bed with like a bowl of ice cream on my huge belly watching Netflix. Obviously, second time around when you've got a toddler, it's less relaxing. Yes, I'm experiencing <laughs> that still... at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yes, there you go. You're in the, uh, in the joyful period now. But we live in the eastern suburbs and so we swim a lot. So it was like a really happy golden time of the baby was safe. Yes, trials were coming, but at that time she was safe. And every time I dove under the water, you know, you can see the sun coming through the ocean. I would think everything's fine right now. This is, this is the time. Enjoy this time now. This is, you know, the easy part. And so then she's born. Is she rushed to Niku straight away or do you get to have some cuddles? Did you know what you were in for? Um, I had a I had a planned Caesar. So the first time around I had an emergency Caesar. The planned Caesar was great because our obstetrician was like a California dime. She was amazing. She talked the whole way through it. And so then while she was doing the Caesar, she's like, okay, this is what I'm doing here. And now I'm pulling her out. And now she comes and she came out, you know, beautiful. And she was screaming, which is an amazing sign because it meant that she could breathe. There's something called prostin, which is like, I think they put them onto prostin, but it's like the thing that their body's already doing to make them breathe because they don't need air in the womb. So they can sort of keep going a little bit once they're first born. So she was breathing. She came out pink. Her Apgar score was nine, which is fabulous, Um, but I did not get to hold her. So I touched her and then she was gone. She was behind me. I could hear her screaming. I heard someone say, oh my goodness, look at her toe. And I was like, what's wrong with her toe? And she's the giant, one giant toe. But yeah, so she was behind me and Mike was cutting the cord. They were checking her. That was it. I looked back on the photos that Mike took and saw that at one point she was 100% blue, like a little blue dolly, um, so that she obviously did have trouble with her breathing and she went straight to NICU from there. It's like a long hallway from the West Mid Hospital to the NICU and she was intubated immediately. She could not breathe on her own. What does it feel like to go home after giving birth without your baby? Mm, so I was there for a good four days in the women's hospital and, um, and then eventually we rented an Airbnb in Parramatta so we could stay there. It was just too far to come back and forth. Um, so, but that, that even just going back after the Caesar, it felt normal because I'd done with, that with Paloma. You know, I knew that I couldn't hold it straight away. I was lying there in recovery, nicely drugged up um, and it, it felt normal. But then when I got back to my room, I realized, I don't know when I'm going to see her. I don't know if I'll see her that day. I don't know if I see her the next day. You know, I had my legs in those compressors and I was coming off the morphine. I was itchy and I was stressed and I, I had no idea what was going to happen. So Mike was with her at NICU and when he could, he FaceTimed me. So I met her for the first time over FaceTime um, and that was wild. You know, like she was swollen from the stuff she was already having pumped into her. She had a massive tube in her nose. She had like, you know, arterial lines and like it was wild. It was wild to see her like that. And I'd actually done a tour of the Grace NICU before she was born. And I remember that was the first time that I got really frightened seeing those little chariots that they go in where they pull them around and that's their home. It's got the, all the drugs attached. It's got everything the nurses need. I remember thinking, is that really where she's going to be? And she was, that's where she was. So it was a weird experience to be lying there and thinking, when will I see your face? Do you think it made a difference, the fact that you knew ahead of the birth that she was going to be spending time in NICU? Yes, I do, because we have made very tight friends from the NICU. And one of the girls that I met there, they didn't know the baby was born. They waited for a little bit. I think they were at Liverpool Hospital and suddenly the baby couldn't breathe and they got like airlifted to Westmead and it was horrifyingly traumatic for both of them. And I think, you know, no matter how terrible it is, when if you know it's coming, you've been prepared for terrible, if that makes sense. Totally. It's still bad. So. You've been prepared for terrible. But having that expectation, I guess, helps soften the blow a little bit. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So 
she's got a tube, but what does feeding look like in those early days? Yeah, so she, she's kneeled by mouth for quite a long time because, um, let me see if I can remember what the reason was, because of the drug she was on or because there was an operation coming up. I'm not sure what the reason was. She was kneeled by mouth for a long time then. They did what's called CARES, so I was expressing, um, and they would put like a, like a tiny bit of a mill of breast milk into a syringe and they like then put like, you know, 0.1 of a mill onto her lips to stop her lips from being chapped or they'd put it onto a breast pad and she could smell that or, you know, they put it into her cheek, that sort of thing. She wasn't eating though. She was on a drip that was like um, saline, I guess, and uh, something, you know, something to keep her alive, but she was not eating. Did you have troubles with your milk supply? No, I am like a Pamela Anderson sized <laughs> boob lady. And once I understood that I had to treat pumping like feeds, it was completely fine. I've always had a great supply and it was awesome. I had so much milk for Soph so that when the time came, she was able to have it. So how did you care for Paloma when you're at the hospital for a longer stay? So my parents had her, which was fabulous of them. She literally lives to my mum. And um, yeah, we've been living with them the month or so before Sophia was born. So she didn't feel like we were leaving her anywhere. You know, it was her home. She was happy to be there. Um, and then after a week when I was out of hospital, we moved into an Airbnb in Parramatta and my mum came too. So Mike and I could do trips back and forth to the hospital while also spending one-on-one time with Paloma. So this is a, a miracle too, literally a, a very gracious miracle of God that I somehow healed from my C-section in like a day oh. so that I could still hang out with Paloma and, you know, move and, you know, stuff like that. It was literally miraculous. That doesn't surprise me, God giving you some superhuman strength and recovery. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what is NICU like? Like, is it a lot of panicked parents and nurses rushing around or is it, you know, really long and slow days? Yeah, no, Grace NICU is like one of my favorite places in the entire world. Like, I love it there. I wish I could have stayed there for the whole time. <laughs> when we got moved to the ward, I like cried that night because I was like, no. It's like a peaceful, quiet cocoon of like love. The nurses there are, are incredible. Yeah. They're literally looking after newborn babies. They're one-on-one with a newborn baby and doing all of the like nurse stuff on the side. You know, like they're watching her oxygen saturations and her blood pressure. And um, yeah, we would go in there and there would be a nurse at her bedside and obviously we couldn't hold her yet, but they would be, you know, they do this thing called um, containing them. So they don't want to, the babies don't want to be panicked because it's distressing while they're sort of in their medical coma sort of things. So they hold their head and their feet and they contain them and they talk to them and they sing to them. And then later on when they can be held, like we come in there and there'd be parents who couldn't come for like a couple of days or something. And the nurses have got the babies in their arms and they're rocking them, they're singing to them, they read them books. They're amazing. It's incredible. And it's peaceful there. Even like the second day, I think, or maybe the third day, I was there alone for the first time and they tried to extubate. So they tried to take out her breathing tube to see what she could do. And in that moment, she crashed. Like she would have like been dead, you know. But they had this team that just went, they just swarmed her and they got the tube back in. And it was like no one shouted, no one rushed. And I don't know if they're doing that because they're just so good at it or if they're doing it for the, you know, to, to keep it, a calm, safe place for everybody. But I was, you know, there was bad news heard there. I heard bad news there a lot. But I never felt like it was out of control because they were just so in control. They're incredible. I can't, you know, thank them enough. Where do the parents hang out? Like, do you have your own rooms or is it just a big communal area? 
Yeah, so it's like an open room and each baby's got their little chariot thing. So it's like a cradle on wheels. So it's like an incubator but without the top on wheels with then like a thing that comes over the top that's like a heat lamp. And you got look, you can sit in a little chair next to them. You can be there day and night. You can't sleep there. You're not allowed to sleep there. But you could literally be there day and night. If you can stay awake forever, you can be there forever. Um, there is a parents' hostel downstairs where you can go and stay. And there's also the Ronald McDonald house if you've got a kid, if you've got a sibling. But we were not happy with Paloma being there all the time. So we didn't stay at Ronald McDonald house. We didn't think it was fair to her to be there all the time. It's a wonderful thing for people to do. just wasn't right for us. So then we ended up having the Airbnb, which is great. This incredible woman. We'd, we'd rented a smaller house and she had another property and was like, because of what you're going through, we want to give you the bigger house at the same price so that you can have more space, yeah. which was so kind of them. And it was, it was like next to a beautiful playground. It was literally next to the Parramatta Westfield. So we had this good space, you know, for Paloma, for my mum, and then Mike and I could take turns going back and forth or when Paloma went to bed, we could go back and mum would stay with Paloma. So we had a really great routine going. Um, we'd go and just sit and read to her and the time passed. Like I remember thinking, what am I going to do this whole time? But like I just look at her tiny little squashy little face and like time passed. We'd read her books and, yeah, time passed. How did you and Mike support each other during this time? I think the best thing that we did was that uh, Mike found it difficult to be with Soph. He didn't know what to do with her. Like, obviously, he was great. If I'd, if I'd said to him, like, oh, just, you know, sing her a song or read her a book, he'd happily do that. But he would also sit there and read his own book, whereas I felt that I, didn't, I couldn't look away from that, really. I would sit there for the entire two or three hours and, like, sing to her, read to her, pray with her. I just couldn't look away. And some to say that Mike wasn't good at doing that. Mm. We just both were relating to it differently. I could barely hang out with Paloma. I had nothing to give Paloma. I didn't have any energy for her questions and I, I was still sore. So like I was, she wanted to be picked up all the time. So I could pick her up by the grace of God, but I couldn't like run around with her at the playground. So basically we just said for the long shifts, I'll do Sophia, you'll do Paloma. We obviously swapped over and I'd hang with Palomzi sometimes, but for the long shifts, we just divided and conquered, um, which was great. And where were you guys at in terms of, you know, your spiritual lives? Like did, were you questioning God's plan and purpose through it all were you coming to him for comfort I think it's just such a weird surreal bubble that again a lot of it just doesn't feel real and like we were so far from normal life too we were away from home and we're away from our friends and you know this new baby was here that I don't know it just became it was completely surreal and 100% routine so I would every night when I was pumping I would listen to I don't know if you know the band City of Light yeah St Paul's and Russell Hill yeah I would listen to City of Light and I would pump and I would do my prayer calendar. So I would look at my prayer calendar on my phone and I would pray for people. And it just felt doable, so doable. You know, we weren't going to church. We couldn't get to church. Um, and then when we were in the hospital too, a lot of the nurses there are Christians, nice. which is cool. So then we would pray and I would sing worship songs and we would play worship music. And in the pumping room at the hospital, I would play City of Light again. It's like good pumping music, I guess. And, um, yeah, it just felt completely doable. You know, Mike and I would read, we were reading um, Tim Keller's devotional on psalms my rock my refuge is a good one and um yeah so just all these small things that were doable and i think it's also because you know mike wasn't at work um we weren't seeing people there was nothing else to focus on except paloma sophia you know our time together and that was it you know so and mum made that possible for us too you know by taking in all the little tricky bits in the middle so yeah did you really feel his presence or his absence 
it, it was just the same. I don't know how to describe it because since then, since having SOF, I've experienced um, personal anxiety or PTSD. They're calling it, they're saying it is not so much personal depression, but PTSD. And I've really struggled to pray and to have prayer time, personal prayer time with God. So things have changed since then. But at that time in the NICU, because everything was under control and because everything was happening one day at a time, well, my relationship with God felt completely the same and undamaged. So you got to go home after a month. What mm-hmm. did life look like post-NICU? Like, do you have regular checkups? Are there future operations? Uh-huh. So we ended up, she had her um, heart, her first open heart earlier than we thought. It was meant to be on, she was born on Tuesday. The next Monday, they were meant to have a meeting to decide when it would be. But then on the Friday, a spot opened up and they were like, she's having heart surgery. We were at the MP. They were like, can you come in? She's having a heart surgery. We we're like, all right, we'll make time. So we came in and they did this heart surgery, which is horrifying. Um, and then because of that, what they did, they put a shunt in and that shunt actually helped her to breathe. So from that, we we're in grace for another like week. And they went from the full intubation to then CPAP and then off the CPAP to like high flow and then from high flow to um, her breathing on her own. And we were home for a week and then she ended up having an infection in her incision and we went back in. We were there for another week or two. So you're in our hospital all the time. We've had maybe four or five hospital stays since her first operation in June. She's actually had a second heart operation. So she had her second open heart in January this year. And before that, she ended up having a cardiac catheter too, which is where they um, try and find out what else they could be doing. So we're in our hospital a lot. I'm the kind of mom that if something happens, I want my son to go to dad because he's really good at first aid. (laughs) Like, did you have a sense of all these things? Did it kind of come naturally what you were looking for? Or did you have to like learn and study and just ask the doctors a thousand questions to feel yeah. any sense of confidence having her at home? Yeah, I think the, the two things they tell you to look for as you go away is um, the tone in the lips. So if their lips start to go, they call it dusky, like purpley blue. And if they're having work of breathing, which I always thought they were saying worker breathing. And I was like, just a hard, like, just a hard worker, but it's work of breathing. Um, <laughs> I hope that's right. Someone's going to be listening and be like, she's got no idea what she's talking about. <laughs> anyway, work of breathing where they're sort of like <gasps> like sucking right into their tummy, you know, trying to get air, then you just go straight to hospital. Basically with SOF, you just go straight to hospital. So we've been to emergency a couple of times to have our SATs checked. And it's funny because a lot of the time when people are expecting a baby to have normal SATs, they walk past and they're like, holy moly, that baby's got, you know, SATs of 75. And they're like, a whole people rushing and we're like, no, 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 that's fine, that's fine. She's okay, 75 is her normal. And then they're like, oh, okay. They have to like reset all the machines because otherwise they'd beat every two minutes. And right. anyway, now she's had her second operation. Her SATs are more like, we saw like a 90-something at one point. It was like very exciting stuff. But yeah, so you basically was watching for her colour and how she's breathing. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. What kind of support did you receive? Like, or, you know, for anyone listening who's got a friend mm-hmm. who's about to have time in NICU or is in NICU yeah. at the moment, what, what sort of things can they do to help? Or even what are the things that people said or did that weren't helpful? Yes, the help that we received was unending. That's how I would describe it, unending help. The nicest thing that people did it sounds like a really like it sounds like a silly thing to say, but every time Mike and I got to sit and have dinner together, it was really special. So when Soph was asleep and we sat down like in the ward, um, you know, have a little pull-out couch, we'd sit on that couch, we'd make a little bit up, we'd put the office on and we'd order like grilled or something. And they'd just be like, We're having a date night, this is special. So a lot of our friends gave us Uber Eats cards, which was such a nice thing because it meant that we didn't have to worry about you know, like one of us going back to the Airbnb and making dinner. We didn't have to worry about I'll eat here and you eat there. 
it was a really nice thing to do that. And that was just such a like incredibly generous thing of people to do. And it really does. It makes things better when you have like a nice dinner and you feel more rational. Um, obviously praying was really helpful to know that people were praying um, and not coming to visit us is fabulous. Please don't visit people in the NICU unless they specifically ask you to. And then also with congenital heart disease, there's no cure. So Soph can have operations to help her breathe on her own and to make her um, well for the time being, but she will continue to have heart operations and be checked on and there's no cure for it. She could die any minute, any time, any day, up until, you know, she's 25, she'll have stuff done. So people kept saying to me like, so good that she's better, so good that it's done. Isn't it great that her operation's done? Like a lot of the time as well, you have good days. And so then when people are like, oh, everything's good, you're like, it's not good. Like I, I wanna I wanna rejoice with you, but when you make it small, it's harder for me. It makes me then feel like, well, I'm overreacting if it feels bad. Like obviously when we're home, it's uh, you want people to say, Oh, you're having a great time, that's great. And yes, we can say Sophia is well, she is well at the moment, but she's not well in general. And a lot of the time you have a baby in the NICU for longer, you know, than a couple of days is because your baby's very sick and you need people to understand how sick your baby is. And you need people to not make you feel bad when you don't want to hang out with them if they haven't had their immunizations or if they are going to bring their kid who's got a cold or you don't want to come to someone's wedding because you have to leave, you can't get a babysitter. You know, you just need a little bit more compassion and understanding. How are you feeling about Soph's future? Um, I don't know. Like there are some days when I like think about, you know, what she's going to be like. Um, but it's very hard to do as well. We were told um, that they don't know um, if she's going to have like, you know, brain damage or if she'll be able to do certain things with the heart and especially with like uh, oxygen. You know, there comes a lot of extra things that could be problematic. Um, she's obviously going to be very delayed with her physical movements because she's had a breastbone broken twice and you can't do tummy time after that, you know, like six weeks to three months. So she, she can't crawl yet. She's 10 months. She can't crawl. She's desperate to. She can now pull herself up, which is like stunning because that's like the muscles and the like breastplate. All it's, you know, it's only been three months. But they have said to us, you know, like wait and see basically. And my mum said to me very wisely, it's wait and see with every kid. <laughs> you know, like it's wait and see with every kid. Some kids might not crawl till they're 18 months. Some kids might go straight to walking. Some kids might have you know, delays in speech or dyslexia, dyspraxia, autism. You don't know what you're going to get with any kid. But I think just because every time we have a heart surgery, we're like, hey, are we one step closer to this being over? The answer is no, we're not. It is hard to think about her future. And also I'm frightened that she's going to die. In fact, like the first maybe three months, every time I had her in the back of the car, I'd look in the back and she'd look still. And I think to myself, is this it? Did she die? Has it happened? And it's hard not to turn that, you know, morbid thing off. It's like you're sort of a little bit, yeah, I don't know how to describe it. You're just ready. You're ready for something to happen all the time, something terrible. So I want to say to myself, she's going to go to school and she's going to get married and she's going to have kids and a job and have friends. And that's what I hope for her very much. And that's what we pray for her. But I, I am frightened. I'm very frightened about her future. I'm frightened about the next surgery and I'm frightened about seeing her be blue and all those sorts of things. Just, I guess, like every parent is, you know, frightened of their kid walking in front of a car on the busy road, you know, we're all scared. Mm. Just sort of final thoughts. Was there scriptures or anything that someone said that helped you along the way? Yeah. I mean, in the time we were sent 
lots of Bible verses from, you know, women from our church and um, friends. Um, we get texts all the time from, you know, people we didn't, and messages on Instagram from friends I hadn't seen in a long time. We actually bumped into a friend of my brother and, and sister-in-law at the hospital, and they're like, oh, we've been praying for Sophia. You know, we've seen the presidency and we've been praying. So it wasn't specifically any scripture that got us through it. It was just we had this incredible upholding of prayer, like, Oh my goodness, I, I said that to people all the time. We've been just so well upheld. I don't know what we would have done. And my dad, um, he's a minister, so he told a lot of his friends. And then there was like some radio station in like Ohio, this Christian radio station who was like putting out a prayer for prayer call for Soph. And yeah, we've just been really, really well upheld. We go to this church, St. Michael's in Vaucluse, and it's a lovely church, but a, a slightly older congregation. But they're prayer warriors, you know, like these are people who say, Every single day we pray for Sophia, you know, every day there are people down on their knees asking God to, you know, be gracious and sustain her. And we've felt that very much. Nikki, you are one incredibly strong mama. Honestly, I don't know how you've gone through what you've gone through and just the way you talk about your girls, the devotion to your family, your trust and reliance on God through some real valleys. Yeah, I'm so encouraged and I'm so thankful for the insight that you've given us on, on what mums and dads go through, um, what the kiddos experience in Nikki. And I'm glad that it was not a good experience, but that you were well-loved, well-supported uh, and well-looked after by nurses, doctors and an incredible support network. Mm, there is a community and you're right we've been just so well cared for so we're thankful for that thanks for asking these hard questions when no one else is (laughs) all right well if you think this episode might be helpful for someone you know please share it with them and if you'd like to continue the conversation search mum's group pod on facebook until next time bye